Thank you for listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message and His Word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. So in the last uh, 12 years, my background is in the education field and coaching. And what I can tell you is after 12 years, I have never had a single player that did not require some support. Every single one. I don't care if they came from a two-parent household, if they came from a one-parent household. I don't care if they, if I was in a district where maybe financially they were more affluent, or maybe if I was in a district where um, socioeconomic bracket was not as high. Maybe they were an only child. Maybe they were one of five. It did not matter. Every single child that I've encountered, every teenager requires some type of support in order to be successful. Okay? But what I've also been able to see up close is that it was on the village, it's on the people around to find out what is it that each person needs to be all that they can be. Because if I tried to give them all the same exact type of support, it may help some, but others not as much. Because there may be some kids that may need support in the form of meals. Some kids may need support in the form of transportation. Some kids may need support in the form of emotional stability. Some may need spiritual wisdom and guidance. Okay, there may be some that just require player development. Okay, but every single one needs something. But one of my primary jobs in the, in the office that I stand in is to find out what type of support do you need to be great. So what I've also learned is that there's been some teenagers that are so happy to accept and receive support. Then there's others who would reject the very thing that could help them. But what I've, seen, what I've learned is those that go on to play college, those that have went on to play and are currently playing professionally, I've noticed a direct correlation that not only did they need a support system to make it, but the ones that embraced and took advantage of the support system and the tools and the people that were around, they tend to be more capable as adults. They tend to be more readily able to overcome obstacles, to overcome challenges, and they tend to be able to further mature in the gifts that they have rather than those that maybe do not take advantage or reject a support system. So when I think about that, I think about the life of David Because David began to receive instruction and messages from the Lord when he was a teenager. For he's 15 years old when Samuel first anoints him as king. So I want to talk a little bit about the life of David today. I want to talk about some of the support system. And uh, specifically, we want to uh, today key in on relational support that David had throughout uh, his lifetime. And then as we, as we close uh, later, there's going to be a particular relationship that we're going to try to focus on today. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to kind of jump through uh, First and Second Samuel. 
Um, no need to turn there yet. When we do need to turn somewhere, I'll let you know. But I just kind of want to build a case to show David's background on how he had established a pattern where he willingly was using the support system. He sought after counsel and advisors that the Lord had put in his path. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is that later, uh, David's, his, his offspring, his son Solomon, later goes and he actually writes the book of Proverbs. And because he is his father's son, the DNA is so potent, it's so dynamic, that there are certain principles that we see in David's life that his son later writes about. Some of those scriptures, such as Proverbs 11 and 14, that says, Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In Proverbs 15 and 22, it says, plans go wrong for lack of advice, for many advisors bring success. In Proverbs 24 and 6, it says, so don't go to war without wise guidance, for victory depends on having many advisors. Starting in 1 Samuel 17, just because this is kind of where most of us get our introduction to David, is when we all have heard of him fighting Goliath, the Philistine. Well, but I must tell you, if you go to 1 Samuel 17, David does not just presumptuously and preemptively run out and begin to fight this Philistine champion. But first he goes to Saul and there is a conversation that happens and he actually gets Saul's consent and his blessing before he goes out and fights. Because even as a young man, he understands that I'm still under authority. So he was okay with the fact that I'm about to go represent the nation of Israel. I think it's a good idea if I get the blessing of the king. Going, going into uh, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, then uh, at that time he gets counsel from Jonathan. And this is after Saul has become jealous and Jonathan actually says, hey, you need to flee because my father is trying to kill you. But he, because David, his ear, he's willing to listen to counsel, he's able to save his life. The next chapter in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, then at that time, Saul's daughter, who he was engaged to, also says, hey, you, you need to flee. And she actually covers and makes a way for him to be able to escape. In 1 Samuel 21, David seeks out Ahimelech. And at that time, that's when the famous story where his, him and his men, they actually eat the bread of the presence at the temple. Then at that time, Ahimelech, he returns to him the sword that he used to save Goliath. And at that time, Ahimelech, the priest, consults the Lord for him. 1 Samuel 22 and 5, the prophet Gad goes to David and he gives him an order to leave the cave of Adullah. You've been in the cave too long, David. It's time to return to Judah. It's time for you to return to your place of praise. You, you, you've been in the sorrow long enough. But the Lord sent me to tell you it's time to come out the cave and to return to Judah. In 1 Samuel 23, uh, David goes and he asks the Lord for uh, battlefield advice when thinking, should I go and attack the Philistines? Is it time? Is, is it good? So he himself goes and consults the Lord. In 1 Samuel uh, 23 and 9, uh, David goes and he consults Abiathar the priest to see what, what should we do about this tension that's rising between us and the Philistines. And he tells the priest, bring the ephod, uh, consult the Lord, see what the Lord would say to you about it. And then immediately after in verse 9, scripture says, and then David prayed. 
Because, see, David understood that although he was to have a multitude of counselors and advisors, they were not supposed to take the place of his personal prayer life. So while you're consulting the Lord on my behalf, I'm going to pray as well because we should come at a place of agreement if we're both listening to the same source. And in 1 Samuel 24, 4 through 7, then uh, David, he listens to some of his men when they actually find Saul asleep. And there's opportunity to where he actually could have gone and taken the life of Saul and his men. They, 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 they're bloodthirsty and they're trying to convince him to do it. And so he doesn't go all the way, but he goes and he just cuts a piece of, of, of his garment off. And then immediately David gets grieved within himself because he realizes I listened to bad counsel that time because my spirit really did not agree with what I just did. And, and then he has to, to come to himself. In 1 Samuel 25, uh, David listens to a complete stranger at the time, Abigail, when the ball had been shearing the sheeps and the goats. And David is so angry and he's out for blood and he's on his way to kill Nabal. And a complete stranger, Abigail, comes and says, oh, it would be so unbecoming of a king to take the vengeance of the Lord. Will you not allow the Lord to revenge your enemies for you? For what great of a man have you any business taking up your own cause and offense? In the New Living Translation, he tells Abigail, thank God for your good sense. So David has this pattern. He has this pattern to where you don't have to have a fancy title to be sought after by David for advice. Because he has a discernment within himself that if what you're saying lines up with what I'm hearing internally, it wasn't about the who, it was about the message. It was about the what. In 2 Samuel 2, uh, David asked the Lord, he said, well, now that Saul is dead, is, is it time? Because I've been waiting 15 years ago, you anointed me. But even then, Saul's dead. David does not assume that it's time to take the throne yet. 15 years sitting on an anointing, 15 years sitting on a promise, 15 years sitting on what God said would be his and would come to pass. And he still, after Saul is murdered, does not assume that it's his time. He still has a conscience to say, Lord, I will not go unless you tell me. Should I go to Judah? So in 2 Samuel 5 and 17, he again consults the Lord. He said, what, what about this battle of the Philistines? See, he did not assume because he had consulted the Lord before and the Lord told him to go that he should go again this time just because it was the same enemy. But he was leaving the window open that if the Lord had a different strategy for this battle, if there was a different tactic for this battle, he wanted the Lord to have full reign and opportunity. No, Lord, I don't want to go off what you told me six months ago because you may there may be some fresh manner today what about this time in second samuel 7 david consults with nathan the prophet and he goes to him and he asks him about building the temple of the lord in second samuel 9 he consults ziba who was a historian a servant under the leadership of saul and he asks him about showing kindness to mephibosheth he submits the king submits to the counsel of a servant because he understands I, that I don't know everything about this situation. He has the humility to understand that just because he didn't have a big title does not mean he did not have big value. Now, David has this track record 
of seeking, of listening, of hearing. But then there's a couple times where David decides that he got caught up a little bit and he didn't really seek and he just kind of went off his own understanding. One of those times is in 2 Samuel 6 where they're trying to transport the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to Israel. And he does not follow all the correct Levitical laws and handling the glory and handling the ark. And a lot of us remember the story that the cart hits a bump in the road and the ark of the covenant begins to fall off and Uzzah sticks his hand out and he's trying to support the glory of God. And the thing about when you're trying to support the glory of God, but I'm doing it for you, God, but I, I'm doing this so you look good. I'm doing, he has a way. He has an instruction, and, and Uzzah, he immediately drops dead, and it looks like, oh, how, how cruel, how mean. But in reality, his blood was on David's hands because, you see, David knew better than to transport the glory of God carelessly. He understood what that Ark of the Covenant was. He understood what it represented, but he got caught in a lax moment where he just assumed, because God was with me all the other times, Surely, I, I, I've reached to a point. We're good. I, I can do this. I don't need to ask you about this, do I? But where I really want to really spend some time today talking is a particular relationship between David and Nathan. David and Nathan. So and if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to read a familiar story in your hearing. And we're going to explore the purpose of Nathan. And the word of God reads, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark of the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Moab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem the day, that day and the next. 
But then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he still could not get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. So when it comes to building a temple, when it comes to me and my men are hungry, when it comes to should I move back here, uh, should we go here? What city should I settle in? Should I fight Goliath? Should I take on this battle? When it comes to all these other major life-changing issues, David has no issue seeking out counsel. <laughs> there was no lack of multitude. But in this case, there's lack of intention to hear truth. We find David in a moment where he does not listen or seek advice or counsel. Because the reality is, he doesn't want accountability in this situation. Because he's already made up his mind on what he wants to do. See, if, if, if we look at the language, verse 2 of chapter 11, it says, late one afternoon after the rest, David gets out of bed, he walks on the roof. No problem. As he looks over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Still really not a problem. He sent somebody to find out who she was. Still not really a problem. But when the man comes back and says she's Bathsheba, okay, daughter of Iliam, okay, wife of Uriah the Hittite, something internally should have went off in David at that time because, see, now when I know better, I should be doing better. It was one thing when, when, when I was just looking, but now David begins, it, he steps into covetousness. So when we look through the story, he moves from covetousness to now theft of stealing a man's wife to, to now committing adultery on his own wife's, and then now murder. So what started, started as just being covetous, it works its way all the way up to murder because David decides that this decision did not need to be ran by anybody. He decided not to submit this to the elders. David did not call a meeting of the deacon board. Da David did not call his advisors. He did not send for the priests. He did not send for the prophets because David made a decision that he knew what he wanted to do and really did not want to hear anybody else's mouth. He really did not want opinion. He really did not want accountability. 
because he wanted to make a decision and put on the arrogance in this situation of how dare you question the king. So he sends somebody, and I must say, so the conversation ends with one servant after he sent him to go find out who she was. And when soon as the man says that's somebody's wife, conversation over, David's done with him, but he does what we do when we try to do some stuff. He gets somebody else. The scripture says, then he sends for messengers to go get her. He gets somebody else who doesn't have that piece of the story of the information because now he's in a situation he can't operate in the light. He's got to create shadows and darkness. He has to cut corners because now he's got to get somebody else who does not fully know everything in the situation because then it just looks like the king is summoning somebody. So David goes and he carries out his plan and, you know, we know about what happens with him and Bathsheba. We know about the repeated uh, plots to kill Uriah and then Uriah becomes this bullseye of a target because now the king wants to operate shady and Uriah's integrity is driving him crazy. Why won't you go home with your wife? But Uriah's commitment to integrity his commitment to service, his commitment to try to walk upright now becomes irritating to the king. Because see, now when you begin to operate in shades and shadows, it's, you, you need other people that are willing to operate in shadows as well. Because when they want to keep operating in light, it, 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 it exposes, it makes your darkness, you have to find a different shade of darkness. To where now the covetousness, to the theft, to the adultery, to the murder, to where now I just, I have to extinguish the integrity from this situation. A year of time passes between chapter 11 and chapter 12. We know the story, Uriah eventually was killed in battle, word was sent back. Bathsheba did the customary uh, time of the mourning period. After she finished mourning, she was brought to the king's palace. She became another one of David's wives. And nobody in that palace said anything. For a year, David sits there, blinded by his own self-deception, content with his own sin and everybody that's around the situation because you have to know that they knew y'all. Come on, y'all. This, this, this was the scandal of the day. The king. You know good and well everybody that worked, they knew whose wife that was. And then now you move in, you move in pregnant? <laughs> I mean, y'all, th th this is not like top secret. Like there are advisors, there's counsel, there are people that live in the palace. There are people around the king. But now because the king has decided to, to dim down his integrity, the king has decided to now walk in a way that, that, that's not really upright, that's not really worthy. Now it affects the climate of the kingdom. 
It affects the climate of the house. So after a year, the Lord allows David to have time to repent, to come to himself, to see if anybody around him was willing to say anything. And then finally, after a year, God breaks the silence and he sends Nathan the prophet to rebuke David. So Nathan shows up. So the name, the name Nathan means God has given. So anytime a Nathan comes, Nathan is coming to be a gift. Nathan is coming to be a blessing. And this is Nathan's words to the king. He said, so the Lord sent, he said, so, so the scripture says, so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David his story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb. I mean, this story, boy, I tell you what, Nathan is like, you know, this little one little lamb. Couldn't even just be a regular sized lamb, you know? No, got to be a little lamb, you know? So this one, he raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. I mean, I can just see David's fury just getting mad listening to this story. But instead of killing the animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and he killed it and prepared it for his feast. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vows, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan looks at David and says, you, sir, are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, has sent me to tell you I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. For this is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. As Absalom later did, if you read in 1 Kings. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. So this is the thing. Because David got to a point to where he was desensitized to his own sin, that he could not see himself. It was pertinent that God send a Nathan and the wisdom of the parable to get the king to see that you were, he was not willing to tolerate in anybody else what he was tolerating for himself. See, the story is about him, but when he heard the story, the only wisdom he could get out of it was for other people. Surely somebody else must be in the wrong. Surely somebody else. See, so, so when, when we're reading the word of God, and, and, and the word of God, scripture tells us, it's, it's like a mirror. 
So, so in, in the temple, in the old time, the priests would go over the laver and they would actually look in the lavers and they, there would be water and they would look to see their face because that was the mirrors that they had back then because they would need to look upon themselves before trying to go into the holy place and commune with the glory of God because they needed to see if they were righteous, if they were acceptable. But have you, have you ever been around, um, maybe you've seen a woman with like a makeup compact have you ever seen somebody pull out a mirror to not look at themselves? <laughs> have you ever seen somebody, maybe they have a makeup compact, but they kind of tilt it so I can see what y'all doing over there. They kind of tilt it so I can see what's going on over there. They kind of tilt it so I can see what's going on behind me. And that mirror that really was intended for me to see what I look like <laughs> now gives me a great view of what you're doing because see what had happened was the king began to use the word of God to judge everybody else except for himself you should never use the word to judge anybody else more than you use it to judge yourself if we don't first remove the log from our own eye. So what God in his mercy and his loving tender kindness, what he does is he sends Nathans to our life. And when he sees that the mirror is crooked and he sees that that spirit of error and self-deception is causing us to see everything and everybody else, he'll send a Nathan and the Nathan will put that mirror right in front of us to make us see and confront the thing we've been trying to hide from. See, everybody does not have the boldness and the audacity to come and readjust your perspective. Everybody doesn't have the boldness to come and say, well, actually, this is what thus saith the Lord. This is actually. But what Nathan does is Nathan's come and they force you to see that's what you would try to look around. Nathan forces you to look and first judge ourselves because, see, when we read the word, the word should be reading us. But the problem is sometimes we read so much for everybody else that if we're not getting daily manna every single day, if we're not getting that glimpse every day of what it is that we look like in the word, we've now got into an error. Oh, but thank God for Nathan's. Oh, but thank God for Nathan's. See, the characteristics of a Nathan, every David needs a Nathan. Every David needs a Nathan. He had many multitude of counselors. He got advice from a fiance. He got advice from a historian, got advice from a servant, from a priest. Oh, but there's something, there's an anointing on Nathan's. Because, see, Nathans are sent by God. They have the ability to correct us when we can't read ourselves. See, you want to say, well, how, how do you know when somebody's a Nathan? Well, Nathans, first and foremost, they're humble. 
Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, at that time, he went to Nathan asking to build a temple. And at that time, Nathan said, go do all that's in your heart to do. Well, later that night, God speaks to Nathan and say, hey, yeah, that was you talking to him. I need you to go change what you said. And the next day, Nathan says, my bad. Actually, it's going to be your son. But don't worry, I got a covenant promise for you, though. Your descendant will always be on the throne. See, see, Nathan's number two, you have to have a Nathan in your life because Nathan's will tell you the truth in love. But see, because God gives us two safeguards for self-deception. One is his word, but when we get that word crooked, see, true friends like Nathan's help us to see what we try to cover up. And finally, the third point, Nathan's stay loyal during adversity. Because if you read through 1 King, when David's family's falling apart and it looks like the throne is in shambles and the palace is consumed with the drama of who's going to take over for the ailing king, Nathan remains loyal and steadfast by his side. But then finally, Nathan seeks to help you walk the redemptive path back to God. Because when Nathan comes, he doesn't just come with an evil, mean spirit to say that it's over. See, if you looked at the relationship between Samuel and Saul and Nathan and David, it's completely different. Because when Samuel told Saul, the kingdom has been torn from you this day. God has changed his mind about you. There was a different spirit on Nathan. Because Nathan said, yes, there's going to be consequences for what you did. But the Lord has forgiven you. The Lord says, do this, do this, do this. Come back. Come back in fellowship. Come back to me. Yeah, you're crooked, but, but I'm not coming because I want you just to see how bad you are. I want you to see how much the Lord loves you, that he didn't want to let you keep walking around looking like that. He wanted to send a Nathan to let you know I love you too much to leave you on that path, but I want you to get back on the straight and narrow. Life is better with Nathans. We can't do life without Nathans. thing about Nathan's is that Nathan's have to be strong-willed because Nathan's can't be rejection conscious. Because there may be some of you in here, God's raising you up to be a Nathan for a David. But you're so worried that if you say something, what if I lose a friend? What, 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 if, what if I hurt somebody's feelings? What, what, what if something happens? But the thing about a Nathan is that Nathan is more afraid of displeasing the Lord than he is of displeasing the friend. You may be a David in here and you, you may say, I, I need some Nathans. Or maybe you know who your Nathans are and you know you've been through certain seasons to where you were quick to run and ask Nathan for advice. Then there were other times when you blocked Nathan's number from your phone. <laughs> Whether you find yourself in either category I just come to encourage you today. Nathans, we need you. We need you. The body of Christ needs you. As we close, I'm going to invite the prayer, the prayer ministers to go ahead and come up. And if this message tugged on you in any way today, maybe there's some of you in here and you say, well, 
I can't find the redemptive path or I, I, I need somebody to help me correct and I need somebody to help readjust my perspective. We have some Nathans at this altar that are willing and ready to extend their arms to you. God gives everybody, just like any good coach, just like any good father, he knows the support that you need. may not be the same as this person sitting next to you. Maybe you may say, I don't feel like I'm supported. Pray and ask God to reveal to you who are your counselors, who are your advisors, who are those Nathans in your life, and have the humility of heart to listen support system. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Embassy Irving.